Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. If you enjoy this show, you can help me out in a few different ways. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Three, you can become a direct supporter of Sly Flourish by going to the, by going to the Sly Flourish Patreon, patreon.com slash Sly Flourish, and becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. And four, you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, Ruins of the Grundle Root, Fantastical Errors, or any of the others. So yeah, and, and this show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much for your continued support. I have a lot of things to talk about today. Uh, a lot of cool, it's funny. So when I, throughout the week, I try to keep a uh, notebook, a Notion notebook page of topics for the show. And a lot of times I'm like, man, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about this week. Nothing is happening. And then tons of stuff happens. So uh, I have lots of kind of fun things to talk about today. First, I want to, the, the Lazy DMs Companion Kickstarter preview page is now up. I am going to be launching a Kickstarter for my next book, The Lazy DMs Companion. If you're watching this show, it is probably a book you will want. Uh, I am very excited about this book. Patrons of Sly Flourish have been able to see previews of this book now for a long time and continue to see new previews of stuff that's coming out. And you can be notified on launch. I'm going to paste this into the Twitch chat right there. The link for this launch page is in the show notes below. And you can help me out for no money at all by going to this page and, and clicking the notify me on launch link. And what that will do is that will send you an email through Kickstarter. First of all, let's Kickstarter know that you're interested, which helps in algorithmic spooky algorithmic ways but also you will be notified by kickstarter the minute we launch the campaign and then you can run right to the campaign page and you can download the preview for free for the lazy dms companion patrons have had access to this al already but i'll do a quick little look at this so the preview is a 17 page a 17 page preview full color fully edited fully laid out scott fitzgerald gray did the editing and the layout for it artwork from matt morrow cartography from daniel walthall page design all sorts of stuff right and perfectly free so you you immediately get use usable stuff that you can that you can throw right into your game today there is an introduction we have tools for improvisation right right off the bat kind of here's some quick things you can do to make your game easier a lot of these things we've expanded on in other sections of the book building an rpg group rpg safety tools building situations right off the bat like how do you build how do you do situation based D&D spiral campaign development how do you build spiral campaigns we we're talking a little bit about that before the show lazy combat encounters a new approach for how to do easy easy encounter building if you've watched this show you've heard the, the two steps start with what makes sense and then figure out the potential deadliness but there's little things for like scaling for higher levels in here tweaking the monster difficulty dials how do you change up monsters to fit the pacing of the game Wilderness exploration with lots of like random stuff here. Generating secrets and clues, prompts for how to build your secrets and clues. Core adventure generators. These are two pages of tables that you can use to build a whole slew of different adventures for your D&D games. These are sort of general purpose tables that you can use in lots of different ways throughout the rest of the book. And then we have a couple of adventure scenarios. Protect the Village, which is an adventure generator specifically designed around the idea that the characters are there, are hired to protect a village from marauders. And then The Keep, a, there's some powerful entity trapped inside of some prison and people are trying to break it out and other people are trying to fight it and you have to you have to deal with it. Some are protecting it, some are breaking it. Yada, yada, yada. And then we have a nice general purpose usable map by Daniel Walthall. It's got a mixture of natural caverns and fixed work. 
And this is all, so you know, we wanted to have a map that you could use for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different purposes. So where the Lazy DM workbook had maps that were specifically designed to fit a particular theme like a castle or a dungeon or cellars or whatever. What we're doing here is building kind of more, more general purpose maps. You could kind of turn them, you can sort of cut rooms off, you can do things with them to build dungeons very quickly, uh, a lot of times based on the generators that we include in the book. So that is the 17 page preview for the book that will be available to everybody for free. The full book is gonna be 64 pages with a whole bunch of more stuff on it. You'll learn all about it when the Kickstarter comes out. And it will be, so the, the Kickstarter is going to be on the 28th of September in about three weeks or so. And we are going to be doing offset printing for this book and the other two Lazy Dungeon Master books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DMs Workbook. It's the first time we'll be doing offset printing for all three. They are going to be in new formats. So there's going to be a hardcover, glossy page version of Return. It'll probably be the best version of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master released. A spiral bound version of the workbook. So it will sit open on your table when you're running your games and a perfect bound version of the Lazy DMs Companion. So all of that is going to be available in the Kickstarter and you can just right now you can be notified on launch click that and you will be notified on launch. So I'm very excited and you're going to hear a lot about it. So I hope I hope you are excited about it as I am because you're going to hear more about it as we go forward and we have more previews and all sorts of stuff going on. So it's going to be very cool. It has been 3 full days since our last rewrite of the Adventurers League. I can't help but make a little bit of fun at Adventurers League. I know it's hard work, and I know I'm not being fair. Boy, we've had like 11 rewrites of the Adventurers League rules, right? It's there's been like there's so much tweaking that goes on here, and maybe it's that it's more complicated than I can understand. My simple mind can't quite grasp exactly how complicated it is to try to get the Adventures League to serve all of the different people who play in it, both DMs and administrators and all the different kinds of all the different kinds of players that come in. I get it. But oh my God, sometimes it does not seem like it can be that hard. I, I got to imagine there's like multiple layers of bureaucracy that are coming up with the rules because sometimes you look at them and you're like, what are you doing? Right. And they'll put the rules out and then those rules have to sit. And then there's some rules where they, they say like, hey, yeah, we're going to talk about that in a future document, but that one's not ready yet. And you're like, so you're passing off. You're, you're giving me some rules now, but you're passing off other rules to a document that isn't yet written and isn't yet out yet. So how do I know if these are any good? Because I don't know what those are. Right. But anyway, Chris Tulek from Wizards of the Coast. Does this go to the, the yay? So Chris wrote an article here on the D&D Yawning Portal website. I'll paste that in the, in the Twitch notes, and that will be in the show notes below, that discussed how to use organized play with fewer rules and more play, which is a philosophy. Uh, yeah, people said, not, it's not less rules, it's fewer rules. It's okay, relax. He's a good guy. It's doing hard work. Three days ago, it's been three days since our last rewrite. He writes a very good guide about wh what the philosophy is, but you're like, why did it take so long for this philosophy? It's been six years. It's been 10 iterations, I think, of a AL rules. Why does it take till now before we're like, you know what we do? We make sure we don't have rules that aren't fun. You think? And that's all great, right? Rules and paperwork, you know, no one likes rules and paperwork, you know, yada, yada, yada. So it's fine, you know, it's great. And, and I will say all of my poking aside, let's see. Oh, that opened a new window. Let me, let me, can I even, that was weird. So the rules, this is the preview of the rules themselves. So, hey, they're not even final, okay. But they're pretty good, right? Which is, yeah, hey, now you can make a fifth level character and you get a magic item. And you can, so you can, you can start at fifth level and get into tier two content. That, that seems good. And it seems like it's, it's time. 
Although their argument was the reason why you didn't have that before was because we wanted to make sure that new people learned the game before they jumped in. And you're like, yeah, but there's more new people playing the game now than there ever was. And now you've said it's okay. It's sort of like the, the, the core plus one. They did core plus one, which meant you could only play with the player's handbook plus one other book. And they did that forever. And people complained about it. But there was like really only one other book. And that was that was Xanathar's Guide and maybe Circus Adventures Guide, right? There weren't many other books. And then they take that rule away now that there's Tasha's, right? And you're like, wait a minute, now when we needed it, now when we need it, you're getting rid of it. So why did you have it at all in the first place, right? So it's hard to not look at this and go, how come you didn't do this, you know, six years ago? That's really the that's really the hard part. They did get rid of rid of a lot of rules. They did get rid of a lot of rules that were clearly just not a good idea, or that many people really didn't like. There was a severe limit on gold. They had the gold caps. They've gotten rid of the gold caps. They had this terrible seasonality segmenting in the last time, and that didn't last six months, right? I don't know if it was six months. But they they had the whole idea of masters and legacy and seasonal and then I forget other, right? I don't remember what the fourth one was. And they got rid of all of that except for the other category, which in the other category makes sense. It basically is saying we have some campaigns like Oracle of War or the Ravenloft, the Mist Hunters, the Mist Hunters Ravenloft campaign. Those are dedicated campaigns. They have their own characters. Then those characters only live in that campaign and they don't go anywhere else. And for like Ravenloft and Eberron, that like, okay, that makes sense. My my Forgotten Realms character should not be jumping in and out of Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft for that for that particular campaign. Same thing with like, you know, Eberron and Forgotten Realms. You can understand why you don't have that. So okay, that that makes total sense. But the the masters slash legacy slash seasonal thing. It was impossible. Like for me, like you know, it. My my wife and I play AL. We play AL online, right? We go to convent online conventions mostly, so we're playing like once every couple of months. We don't play a lot, and it was impossible to like. I can't keep track. Like I only have so many characters. I don't have a lot of characters. And the idea, like, I want to play some Candlekeep, but I don't have a character capable of going to Candlekeep because they're in. Oh, I could take my character from Icewind Dale from from Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, and I could have them do the Candlekeep one. But then I can't go back again because they went from seasonality to masters and you can't go from masters back to seasonality again. Right. And it was just like, oh, I'm just I'm not going to pay attention to that. Right. So like anyway, they got rid of it. The good news is the seasonality is generally gone. And that's good because no one I, I couldn't even get an explanation for like. I think I actually found out or heard that the Moonshay stuff was half in and half out of masters. Right, that some of the moonshay was in masters and some of it was not, and you're like, oh my god, really? You know, some is seasonal and some is not. Oh, it's still all in moonshay, right? So yeah. Anyway, they got rid of that. There is, and so this is where like, oh yeah, there's rules for that, but it's somewhere else. And by the way, we haven't written that one yet, right? It's not rules. It's some, you know, it's more like guidelines. And the question I had was like, there are definitely problematic magic items that can wreck an AL game that I have seen in play. And the examples are, hey, my friend and I played through Tomb of Annihilation, and at level two, I managed to get a Shield Guardian. And so I'm bringing my Shield Guardian now with me on all the adventures that are tier one, and the Shield Guardian is going to go and take care of things for us. Uh, I've seen that happen, right? I guess the Shield Guardian has been banned in, in current play and in future play. And it's it's in some other, there's another there's another guide. I think it's called the, the Content Catalog, the CC, ALCC, AL Content Catalog. And that one explicitly discusses which items you can't pass from one campaign to another. But it's not in here, right? And so if you are in the player, if you are a player and you pick up the player's guide and you play with a DM who happened to not know what he was doing and gave you a shield guardian, and then you go to a game and you're like, I'm bringing my shield guardian. The DM at that game is going to have to be like denied, right? Why? Because you shouldn't have had it in the first place. So 
you know, there, there has to be, I think the only area where you actually want to do any limitation on characters is magic items. And I actually think one of the things they got rid of in here is that you, that you have the magic item caps, right? How many magic items you can, magic item limit per tier, but it did not limit it by maximum type. So you couldn't say, for example, at tier one, you can only have uncommon magical items. I think that that was reasonable to have. I think the idea that it was like uncommon items at tier one, rare items at tier two, very rare at tier three, and then tier four was everything, right? That made more sense to me, but whatever, no one's asking me. Otherwise, it's three pages. It's very slim. It, it definitely doesn't get in the way. The, the idea, getting rid of gold cap, and get, which should help many people. Many people really didn't, as far as I could tell. Certain loud people that I read on the internet really didn't like the gold cap. I never bothered me, but I, I never really played wizards who use gold a lot to, to scribe spells. I think the big deal is basically you're saying wizards get access to all the spells, you know, in, in, in higher tier content. And so the gold cap is gone. And more importantly, the seasonality thing was gone because I think that was just a license to cheat. I think that as soon as you put seasonality limitations in place and said like, well, you can't take a character from legacy and play them here and you can't take them from here. Or if they go in here and they go out, they can't come back. Like once a character hit masters, you know, once you hit, uh, once you hit masters, you can't go anywhere else. Like no one's going to pay attention. No one's going to care. They like the only way you'd get caught cheating is if you had a magic item from some place and you brought it forward. And then the DM happened to know like, wait a minute, that magic item does not exist in this series. You could only have gotten that here. And if you got it here, you couldn't have come over here. You know, basically, like, I think that the idea was that in a, when a new campaign comes out, they didn't want to have people show up with crazy broken stuff from older campaigns in a new campaign and then kind of wreck the game. I don't know if that that's really a big problem. So, yeah. So here we are. It's great. It's fine. But, oh, my God, just the machinations of rules for AL really cracks me up. And, you know, hopefully, like, can you imagine going two years without a rules change? Right? I can't even imagine it. It hasn't certainly been that way. It's been, I think, basically every six to nine months, there's been a new set of rules. And, and they're almost always significantly different than the rule set previous, which means even for someone like me who lives and breathes D&D all the time, who thinks about AL a lot, who plays AL, I can't keep up. Right? I, I forget. I go, like, wait a minute. What about the rules from back then when you had like, you know, points that you spent on magic items? Like, it's so crazy about all of the different things that they've tried and how extreme those changes have been. And I, I'm sure there's some interesting story about how the, all this happens in the background, right? Like how I'd like to know how the sausage gets made here. But we know that what comes out the other end are a whole bunch of different kinds of sausage and some of them are not very tasty. So yeah, if you wanna know more about AL, if you wanna to talk to people who also do live and breathe AO, who will answer your questions, they answered some of mine, you can go to the D&D Discord, I think it's discord.com slash D&D or Discord, go to the D&D Discord, it's not hard to find. And one of the uh, forums there, one of the, the, the Discord channels there is for, specifically for Adventures League. The AL admins hang out there, that's where all the official announcements are made. That's their central hub for socialization about AL. And you can always find people there who will be able to answer your questions for them. So, so check that out. Alignments. So if we recall, I think it was, how many books now? Candlekeep didn't have them. And Van Richten's Guide didn't have alignment. They took away alignment for monsters. And the, I don't know that they explicitly said this, but the general consensus is that when you take certain humanoid creatures and you put a fixed alignment on them, you are l severely limiting that. First of all, you're you're creating a you're you're creating a stereo a bad stereotype, right? 
and really going back to sort of bad ways that we think about people, right? And their thought was, you know, like when you apply something, if you have orcs and you say orcs are chaotic evil, well, that's really like this bad sort of stereotype that all orcs are chaotic evil. That alignment is broken often in storytelling, right? Because it's like, you know, we want them. So you look at like, what was it? The computer game of, like you go look at Planescape Torment and Planescape Torment had an entire nation of undead that weren't evil, right? And you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So right away, going against the alignment of a monster was a pretty interesting way to go. But the, the general reaction was, well, why don't we just remove alignments from stat blocks? And I thought that that, you know, I understood why they did it. And I don't disagree with the intent. But I, I felt like that was a nice bit of shorthand that helped DMs kind of understand, generally speaking, what this, what this creature is going to be like. I can understand removing it for certain, like, conscious races. Again, your, your orcs and your goblins and stuff like that, where... The idea that we want to say, like, we have now n lots of nice goblins and orcs, right, in our in our campaigns. And many interesting campaign settings, like Eberron, have taken orcs and goblins and turned them into something else that isn't just a bunch of thieving little bastards or a bunch of ravenous, you know, monsters. That's cool. But then you're like, what about a bullet, right? Or what about, like, an, an edder cap? Do we really, are, are edder caps really, you know, demons? Like, aren't, aren't demons, by definition, fixed to an alignment? Why are we taking away alignments for demons? And... Anyway, the, re the end result was they are bringing them back. We have seen them bringing back alignments in the upcoming, what's it called? Witchlight. The upcoming adventure, uh, Wilds Beyond the Witchlight. And we saw this in a preview of a creature called the Jabberwock. If you're not familiar with the Jabberwock, go Google it. Because it's got a really cool poem and it has a connection to Vorpal Swords. Oh boy, I can't see this at all. So the Jabberwock, as we can see, has a new alignment thing where they added the word typically. Typically chaotic evil. Now, some would say, you know, the Monster Manual already described alignment as not being 100%, right? That you could go, that, I think the Monster Manual explicitly said, this is the most common alignment for these types of creatures, the, i.e. this is typically. But, you know, but they still listed it. And now they're kind of moving that one word, and it's like you're adding a word to every stat block with the word typically, Okay, I guess. Is that really? I don't know if that's where the complaints about stereotyping, you know, and sort of, you know, inherent racism that, that was it kind of existed in D&D, &D, which does exist. That's true. It, was the alignment thing really the problem? Right. I don't really think I didn't see anybody who said alignment was a problem. I think I saw like a couple of tweets from people that are like, ah, alignment is disgusting and should be removed totally. And you're like, I, I understand the, the, the drive, but I don't know that that's where the problem is. Right. I think that there are other ways to, to address address some of the inherent racism that exists in, in throughout D&D and not just remove alignment from stat blocks. Like I think, A, that's kind of a small and somewhat lazy approach. Right, granted, I'm a lazy guy. You know, so typically that's fine. I get, you know, it's fine. Like it's not going to wreck my world. They've got the space. It, it's not hard to, it's not going to make the stat block harder to use. And, and I do kind of like the fact that, that alignment is back in some form. I just don't think they need to even bother with the word typically. I don't think alignment was really the problem. I think if you want to, if you want to change things up, you shouldn't have a stat block for an entire race that says they're all a bunch of thieving little bastards, like it does for the goblin in the monster manual. And instead you could say goblins are this way. Goblins of this particular goblin God, they are a bunch of thieving little bastards, right? Because they are worshipers of this particular God. So goblins of Maglubiat, those guys are a bunch of bastards, right? 
So I think that that same thing with like orcs of grum, grumps, right? Like that you can have orcs, right? And not all orcs are a bunch of bastards. In fact, you know, many of the orcs could be perfectly fine people that are, you know, good members of society, just like half orcs are, right? We don't we don't apply things to half orcs. Why are we buying orcs? So and instead you could say orcs of grumps, they're bastards, right? Orcs of grumps. If you see an orc of grumps and you can usually tell because they're wearing an eye patch and they have like a big hand on their forehead or something like that. Watch out for those guys, right? Because they're nasty. Those guys have chosen to be a bunch of bastards, right? They have been, you know, brought up as, as being a bunch of bastards. You know, they're a bunch of bastards, right? So I think that that I like that approach better. If I were going, you know, if they said, hey, Mike, we'd like to get your advice on how to rewrite the monster manual. I would have sections that say, here's drow. And then here's drow of Menzo Baranzin or drow worshipers of Loth. Right. And you have drow over here, which are unaligned because they can be any alignment, just like any other elf can be. And then you have the drow of Menzo Baranzin or the drow of worshipers of Loth. Right. And they are nasty. Right. And it's by choice, right? It's kind of by choice. It's still brought up there. That's a whole other sociological question. So interesting. What is sad about the Jabberwock is that it is challenge rating 13 and has 115 hit points. I like to focus on mechanics, you know, more so than, than other people do. And just, I don't know what's going on, man. You know, like how hard is it to look at that and go, it's 115 hit points. I get that confusing burble is crazy powerful and does wacky, wacky stuff and probably makes it really hard to beat. But holy cow, a paladin, since it's any creature that starts its turn, a paladin can run up. It's CR 13, so it's not inconceivable that you'd be facing it at tier three. But let's even say tier two. A paladin can still go up and smite the hell out of it. If, if this thing's initiative went low, they'll, one round, they'll kill it before it gets a turn. 115 hit points is like three turns of, of characters that are in tier, tier, tier two-ish. Like a, a level eight character can definitely dish out you know, a third of this, more than a third of this. So double the average hit points. Probably you would want to double the average hit points. Even the max is 150, no, uh, 170. 170 is closer. If you maxed out its hit dice, you know, 170 is, is a little bit better. And then you go, oh, well, it has, you know, oh, it's vulnerable from slashing from a Vorpal Sword. That's cool. But you have to have a Vorpal Sword. And then where is it that it's got, oh, it's got regen 10. But, but when it takes slashing damage, it's regen. I mean, come on. What a waste of space, right? Like, if you're going to bother putting regen in there, either give it regen or don't. But if it's regen from slashing damage, like, you know, they're going to get slashed, right? Like, slashing damage is not a really rare form of, of, of magic. I would probably say slashing damage from a plus two or greater weapon or something like that, right? Like, make it so, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, this, you know, this gets into my, my rant. So, the people who are asking for 6th edition D&D, Look at the design work of Tasha's and look at the design work of their later stuff and ask yourself if that's what you want for sixth edition, because that's what it would be, right? That's the stuff that's coming out now. And I look at Tasha's and there's stuff in Tasha's that's a complete mess, right? And I look at the, the monster design in 5e, it hasn't gotten better, right? Like Morden Canaan's is a weak monster book. I, I wish it was great. I, I would love for that book to be great. And there are many monsters that are, are, that are great. But then there's many who are like, what are you guys thinking? Let's go to... The Red Abishai. I was looking at the Red Abishai, right? The Red Abishai is this challenge rating 19. Think about how high a 19th CR 19 creature is. That is really, really powerful. 255, uh, 255 hit points. That's a decent amount of hit points. There's a whole section. Somebody explain this to me because I'm probably being dumb. It would not surprise me. There's a whole, look at the size of this paragraph of text. It, next to Frightful Presence is the largest block. 
the Abishai targets one dragon it can see within 120 feet. The dragon must make a DC 18 con save. The chromatic dragon makes it with disadvantage. On a success, is immune to the Abishai's power of the dragon queen for one hour. On a failed save, the target is charmed by the Abishai for one hour. Who cares if they're charming a dragon? When's that going to come up? None of the characters are dragons. So we have a whole section, this huge paragraph of text on this stat block, right? Built for two NPCs to interact with one another. Who cares? Put that in the flavor text. Be like, hey, Red Abishai often command dragons, particularly chromatic dragons. I did it in five words, and it has the same effect. Because I don't need a freaking stat block here to tell me how to have my dra Red Abishai charm a dragon. I Maybe there's why. Somebody tell me why I'm getting it wrong. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. There's got to be a good reason for this. I don't see it. And I see a lot of text there about dealing with dragons. So here's the other thing driving me nuts, right? So uh, multi-attack. Ibishai can use this frightening presence. It also makes three attacks, one with Morning Star, one with Claws, and one with a Bite. Morning Star, plus 12 to hit. 10 piercing damage with a Morning Star, right? Okay, interesting. Claw, 12 to hit. 17 slashing damage. Why would the Red Abishai attack with a Morning Star that does, you know, whatever that is, nearly half the damage? Drop the Morning Star and make two Claw attacks, and you increase your attacks by seven. What, what is going on here, right? Why? The bite is pretty hellacious, right? The bite is pretty nasty. So, you know, the bite is 12 to hit, 22 piercing damage. Crazy amount of piercing damage. That's a big jaw on that thing. It's medium too. Why does it do 3d10 on a bite with a medium creature? Man, I don't know, but whatever. So it does 22 piercing damage plus 38 fire damage, right? On a bite. That is tremendous. What is that? 40, 50, 60 points of damage. Is that average 60? That looks like 60 points of damage in the bite alone, right? So, you know, okay, great. Uh, but but the, why would its weapon attack be less than its its natural weapon attack? Doesn't make any sense. So I, I have a feeling that like they they built it, they built it with the Morning Star. The Morning Star did a bunch of damage, and they're like, oh, we can't, we get, we're doing too much damage. Let's lower that. So they lowered the Morning Star. <laughs> I don't get. It. And then hey, let's add this Power of the Dragon Queen thing on here, right? Give me a break. Oops, I clicked on something. So, yeah. So this gets into something which I'm going to talk about. And actually, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to move the preview down. Because one of the thoughts that I had about this is like, there, most of the interesting things that are happening in the world of 5th edition aren't happening at Wizards of the Coast, right? Some of the most interesting design things that are going on there can happen outside of Wizards of the Coast because they're allowed to experiment more. Wizards isn't allowed to experiment more. But Wizards is experimenting they're just putting out CR 13 monsters with 115 hit points, right? That doesn't seem like experimenting. That seems like bad design. What do I know, right? You know, I'm just, it's just me talking. And some people I'm sure have good reasons why they say, oh, they did. But I'm guessing that Jabberwock's going to get its ass kicked. So uh, yeah, Scipio says, uh, didn't Jeremy Crawford say they have to tweak the stat blocks after the art comes out? Yes, they do. They have, they many times have to tweak the monster in order to fit the artwork. So they add something, but they can't give it more damage. So next thing you, you have like a CR 11 elf that fires a bow that does less damage than a goblin. Is there a way to figure out who did, who designs certain, I don't want to put blame on anybody. Oh, I, I see. You want to find out who did the star spawns. I don't think you could pick, and, and I've heard this from wizards that you can't pick any single designer and be like, oh, the guy who did the star spawn was great. The guy who did the uh, red Abishai was not. There's so much, there's so many different hands that go into every monster 
but I have a feeling like something happened right at the end of Morden Canaan's where they like lowered the power of a lot of monsters and it really wrecked a lot of monsters. You know, Hootagen is bad. The there's so many monsters in there where you're like, what were you? What was going on? There were just mistakes that were made with Morden Canaan's, and it's sad because it's like a major monster book. That aside, what about some of the interesting things that are going in other in in other areas? And you know, there's a whole bunch. So. I actually think a lot of very interesting things are happening at, with various Kickstarters. So we just saw Cobalt Press, who is the number one third-party publisher for, for fifth edition. They just came out with the Tome of Heroes, right? And they didn't come out with it, but they just finished their Kickstarter. They had nearly 7,000 backers, the $378,000 that they got for it, to put out a big book of character options, right? The trick with the character options, which I've talked about before, is because they're not in D&D Beyond, that's a pretty severe limiting factor there but they definitely are going to have a lot of interesting options and i bet you they're better than tasha's right like you know i i don't know i would i trust them as much as i would trust tasha's then we have like multiple campaign settings that are coming out you know tenaris one and a, almost a one and a half million dollar kickstarter for this huge campaign setting right and and you know really crazy number of authors you know veteran authors who have written for a lot of D stuff that's going to be part of it really interesting stuff that's happening there i back i back that one because it looks it's a great it looks like a really good deal and b you know i like the hype train valdis spire i haven't really looked at this one but more character options three hundred seven thousand dollars. so getting close they have 18 days to go right so this one is going to probably be bigger then this one's probably going to be bigger than than the Toma Heroes, but another big book of character options, right? You know, new base, ten base classes, right? So look at all the, like the experimenting that's going on in Fifth Edition is pretty. I mean, that's kind of my point with all this is like there's a lot of Delver's Guide to to Beast World, right? Two hundred fifty eight thousand dollars, twenty three hundred backers. Probably not for me, you know, because animal anthropomorphizing isn't really what I love in D anD D, but you know, lots of people do. So you get a whole bunch of new species that you can play. Probably big with kids, you know. But I, I know a lot of people that would love to play like wolf people. So, you know, again, really cool art. A lot of, lot of stuff happening. All 5th edition compatible. And what's the last one? The Questonomicon. This is done by XP to Level 3, which is a big YouTube channel. The half a million viewer YouTube channel. And they are doing a book of short adventures and quests, right? And they have tremendous... I think Ghostfire is partnering with them. And anytime Ghostfire partners with you, you know, you're going to do a pretty good deal. 26 days to go. 280... Well, I got to jump it up while we're talking about. 3,000 3, backers. You know, that's going to be a big a big project too. And look at all the tchotchkes and doodads that are going to be part of this. Cards and all sorts of... You know, miniatures, all sorts of things. So there is a lot. My, my, my point with this whole little segment is to say there is a lot of new and interesting things coming out in fifth edition that isn't at wizards and it's okay if wizards puts out a book and it's not the best book because there are many others uh that we can fall on many different designers from many different publishers who are publishing lots of different things that are fully compatible with fifth edition so you know again yeah i i, I definitely like tome of beast too more than i like uh morning canaan's right like morning canaan the lore in morning canaan's is really great I love the lore stuff, right? And many of the monsters that are in Morning Canaan's are actually designed very nicely, right? And they, they work really well. But it's inconsistent, right? The same thing with Ravenloft, that Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft has many, many great monsters in it. And then some that are like, what? It was, you know, scratching my head. So, yeah. Let's talk about another third-party product. So, Raging Swan Press, I've only really become aware of them in the last six months or a year, but I've kind of fallen in love with them. And... So Raging Swan Press puts out many, many, many small, I would say OSR-like products. 
they have started producing more fifth edition products. And I think this is probably why I hadn't heard of them. They, I think they primarily focused on Pathfinder products, right? And I, I'm, I'm not a Pathfinder guy, so I didn't really follow them. But they have put out a lot. Of, I, 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 some people in my Discord chat talked about it and said, oh, you should really check this stuff out. And I did. And I, I, there's a many, many different products that Raging Swan creates. Let's take a look at their, their drive-through page. I think I've talked about them before. I, I know I've talked about them before. And I think I might have even highlighted some of their products. So, so Raging Swan, let's, let's, come on. There's all these bundles. Let's pick a, you know, we'll pick this thing because their, 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 their publisher page has lots of different cool stuff and it shows like which of their stuff is their top sellers. I'll paste this in the Twitch chat. And I think I really like their OSR stuff. So they have like the the system neutral urban dressing book, for example, is something that I had picked up. I, I, I yeah, I've got it right here. A nice, nice big thick, nice big thick book, kind of well done. Nondescript covers, right? Just a single monochrome cover, color cover. Uh, this is a big book for twenty one fifty for the PDF and soft cover. It is a hundred and seventy eight page print book. So they are good deals on drive through because they are black and white. And that doesn't matter too much. Like the fact that the black and white doesn't really matter, but they, they publish some really good stuff. So I want to talk about one of their products today, which is Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands. Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands is a adventure book. It is 90 pages. Uh, I have it both in physical copy. It is for fifth edition or Pathfinder. There isn't an OSR version, but the fifth edition one is pretty close. It is an homage, as as written, it is an homage uh, to two different books, classic adventure books, both by Gary Gygax, Keep on the Borderlands and The Village of Hamlet. And this sort of takes a lot of the concepts and ideas and feelings from those books and creates a new adventure book built around those concepts. It is a very classic style adventure. You have a big town. You have rumors and things that are going on in the town. You have different sort of quests that you pick up. And then you go and delve deep into a dungeon nearby that sits underneath a ruined keep. There are multiple factions that exist inside of the keep that are at war with one another. There's a bandit group that's dealing with some goblins. And there's like, you know, bounty hunting missions that you that you take. It is a really well put together adventure. It's got cool handouts for the players, very clear about how you can get started and how to run it. Like what's interesting is while it pays while it pays a lot of 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 credit back to classic D&D adventures like the Village of Hamlet or a keep in the borderlands. It's using modern sensibilities and it's designed to make it easy to run. And this is something that that I think Crichton at Raging Swan really understands is how to make things that are useful to DMs to help them run games, which you know is is you know something that I love and something that I that I really subscribe to. And they're doing a fantastic job of it. And they do that in this adventure. Lots of different bits of lore, a rumor table, including false rumors. I'm not crazy about false rumors, but it can be kind of fun. Different knowledge checks that you can learn about what's going on. The town Dulwich really neat. It's actually pretty big, right? A four thousand person, uh, four thousand person town. Really more like a small city. So it's a pretty big place with a lot of people going around. And then you know, again, more kind of rumors, life that's going on. It's got an events table about what is happening in town. You you know, I've I've done this in my own adventures. I I, I highly recommend sort of. You want a strong start, you know, you roll you roll 2d8 and you take a look at what happens here and you go, oh, a scrawny man and noble liverly is struggling to carry a large ornate vase down the street, almost crashes into several people as he totters along. Cool, right? Really cool kind of really cool kind of way to deal with it. Lots of notable locations. So this is this is something that they do that he does in this book that I think is fantastic. And he does it in multiple places, which is there's lots of detailed descriptions of stuff, but then there's these very quick guides, one page guides that says, here are all of the locations. And here's one sentence about what's there. 
And so you have this beautiful, look at the beautiful cartography in here, right? That's a beautiful, beautiful map. And yet has this really like, who are the notable people? Who are the notable locations, right? Really, really quick one page stuff. Even though it's a big adventure, it, it, really, it really summarizes stuff very quickly. Notable streets. One, if I'm going to complain about anything, the thing well, I'll complain about is that, so this has been rebuilt, right? That this is, I think, the second edition of this adventure. Crichton has run it many times. It's been play tested a lot, so it's been very well tested. Cool, like, what to do in between adventures. This is very fifth edition based. So even though this is originally a Pathfinder adventure, it's not like, hey, we just redid the DCs. He has stuff about, like, in between adventures. Like, what are some of the downtime activities you can do in town, right? How do you buy magic items? Really useful stuff, right? Really, really good really good like small campaign sort of stuff again longer descriptions of the notable locations but you can go back to that reference guide so lots of stuff about the town then it's got stuff about the area around it it actually feels very much like ghost of salt marsh right ghost of salt marsh had sort of like the town and what's around it in the dungeons it's sort of like a small version of that the surrounds lots of stuff going on around the area things you know random encounters that you can have yeah love love me some good random encounters Again, more beautiful maps of the area. Deep descriptions of like other cool adventure locations that the characters might go that aren't the main thrust of the book. I think that really makes it a living a living thing. And then you have the Shadowed Keep itself. The Shadowed Keep is a multi-level dungeon. So this adventure is built for first to fourth level characters. So it's a perfect tier one adventure. It gets you to fifth level, right? So think about it like a Lost Mine of Fandelver size thing. You know, it, it's, you know, relatively, given that it's 90 pages, it's a relatively small level set. But I think it can work with, and I think it, it, it looks great. I think a lot of it is because like half the book is about the town, right? We're on page 36 before we get to the dungeon. Beautiful maps. I, I think this is a good question. I don't know if it comes with VTT compatible maps or not. Anybody in the Twitch chat that wants to see whether or not you can find VTT compatible maps for this, I would love to, sorry, this is for shadowed keep on the borderlands. Do, do, do. The Shadow Keep of the Borderlands 5e is there. I don't see I don't see that it comes with any VTT maps. Give me a, give me a second here. Oh, so Timothy says uh, you can download the Raging you can download VTT compatible maps for this on the Raging Swan website. Awesome. I will grab those and I will put that in the show notes below cuz yeah, I think VTT compatible maps for this would be really really nice. So, I'm glad to hear that they have it. Much like look at look at the cool classic style art. Right. Actually, the guy, uh, one of the art, one of the cartographer, one of the artists for this is doing art for the Lazy DM's Companion. So you're going to see some some similar art, although the Lazy DM's Companion art is going to be color. Not that I'm not going to black and white. Black and white art is beautiful. Timeline. What happens? What are some ways that this custom this that this evolves? It definitely has an idea that you would go and you would do some stuff. You would leave. You'd rest outside or go back to town and go back in again. And it's not intended that you crawl the whole thing all at once. You probably wouldn't be able to. And I believe somewhere in here I saw it is a, for the bigger dungeons, they have that same sort of the key, right? Like what are the, here Here are the 16 rooms and one sentence about what's here, what monsters are there, very quick summary of it. They have some cool stuff. There's a little bit of a spoiler. They have like locations in here that are really hard to find that contain a lot of cool stuff. And the intention is like, not everybody's gonna find them. They are not intended for everybody to find them. I think that's really cool. So multiple dungeon layers, lots of different, lots of different cool monsters, very classic style to it, trapped rooms, trapped you know neat neat monsters so uh raging said why is it sold in color it's because of the page size or sorry the, the physical pages are thicker when you select the color but it's still pretty cheap 
So 21 bucks is still really cheap, but it's a higher quality. If you selected black and white, the pages would be thinner. That's why it's in, that's why it's using the color print, even though it's in black and white. It's because of the page thickness. So yes, you know, neat, neat dungeon design. You know, it's got your jQuay style dungeon design with loopbacks and secrets and all kinds of, you know, things that you can do. There's loops here, there's loops here. Really great stuff. Beautiful maps. Again, cool art. I know I keep talking about the art. Hey, Gelatinous Cube. So if you were looking for a sort of traditional D&D adventure, something that feels like the old school D&D adventures without, you know, and you could run the old ones. Like I've run Village of Hamlet and stuff like that. Keep of the Borderlands. Keep of the Borderlands was one of the playtest adventures when they were doing D&D Next. But this one's just, it's so much, it's so well designed, right? It is so clean and it's, and it's sort of battle tested by having been run for, for years and then revised. And you don't get to see many adventures like that. Imagine if they took a book like Waterdeep Dragon Heist and said, we're rewriting it. We're rewriting it and reformatting it based on all of the different experiences of all the different DMs that ran it. That would be really cool, wouldn't it? And that's what they did with this one. And it's 21 bucks for the, for the PDF and the, and the physical version is 21 bucks. I'm really hoping and planning to run this adventure soon for probably not any of my main groups, but I'm probably going to run it for one of my irregular groups because I, it just looks like a lot of fun. It looks like it captures that old school of D&D. And I'm really, I'm really excited about it. I think this... The only, a hard part is that this is out the same time that Scarlet Citadel from Cobalt Press came out. And both of them have that sort of old school feel to them. Which of those two would you want to run, right? Is, is a little bit of a tough, a little bit of a tough sell. But I think this is significantly cheaper for one. And they're both really good. So yeah, so check out Shadow, Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands by Raging Swan. Fantastic book, really cool. I love. I, I I spent an afternoon kind of reading it, reading it through, and I just the whole time I didn't see anything. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't work. Like, how's that supposed to work? I was like, no, this is really cool. I could, I would really like to run it. So I highly recommend it. Uh, check it out. So we've got about 15 minutes left to uh, talk about some questions from Patreon patron patrons of Sly Flourish. So these are all questions that I picked out from the, we have a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon page in which I ask for questions that I will, that I'll, that I'll look through and I'll pick up, I'll pick up and I'll, I'll talk about either in the show here or do a separate video where I talk about them or some of them I'm not going to be able to get to. Ryan R., a patron of Sly Flourish asks, I'm currently running an open table West March's Hex Crawl at a Mead Hall every Sunday. As a consequence of that, I rarely know who my players will be in advance, nor do I necessarily know what they will do once the session starts. I've got a kludge, I've got a kludge developing where I have secrets and clues broken up by region, i.e. secrets and clues found at the Dwarf Ruin. These clues can be found in Marrowwood, etc. In addition to the standard character-focused secrets and clues. But I would welcome more ideas for applying the tools of the Lazy Dungeon Master into an open table environment. So really good and interesting question. Probably, you know, not a lot of people probably play this way. So, but, but yeah, I think there's a few things that are probably be useful. So, so one thing is what we, he brings this up as a West Marches style game. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that this style doesn't, from my understanding of West Marches, doesn't fit the West March, one of a couple of key principles about West Marches, which is in a West Marches style D&D game, which you can um, Google West Marches style D&D and you'll find the article about it. Uh, and I'll probably, I'll link to it in the notes below, but for those of you who are on Twitch, and if anybody wants to go find it and post the the the, the West Marches primer, the, the first article that talked about West Marches. So West Marches style games are games in which they are more player driven than DM driven. Players decide that you, you have an open world, you have multiple DMs that play in the same open world, and you have groups of players who go and essentially recruit DMs to run parts of it for them. And 
the players bring the topics. The players say, the players schedule the games, right? They, they handle scheduling and they tell the DM upfront what area they're going to explore. And then the DM focuses on this area. Ryan's, in Ryan's situation, uh, he's not running it that way. Instead, it's more like an Adventures League style where players show up at the table. He doesn't know who they're going to be. And the first five people that shows up, he's going to run a game for them. And then they're going to go somewhere. And he probably offers up multiple options for them. And then they pick which way they're going to go. And as you can imagine, it is hard to do that and also be prepped for all of the things. So Creatures of Queen says he needs tons of tables in the background. Yeah, so random, random stuff can help you. But the reality is you're probably going to have to do some upfront homework. I would think in this style of game, you would want to do some upfront homework to develop all three of the locations you're planning to go to. So let's say you have a ruined watchtower, you have the weird cellars underneath the old inn, and you have that cave behind the waterfall, right? You have these three different locations and you have three hooks for each of them. And then you would develop each of those locations as their own adventure, right? As a, as a lazy DM adventure. And you, would, in my thought, you would go through the eight steps for each one of those, right? And then you'd have them set aside. So you're like, okay, I went through my eight steps. I've got my secrets of clues. I got my interesting locations. I got monsters. I got, I got NPCs. I got hooks. I got all the stuff. And then you take that and you, and you put it aside and you do the, you know, I do that for the ruined watchtower. I do another one for the cellars underneath the inn. And I do another one for the a cave behind the waterfall. And you'd have whole sets of locations, starts, secrets and clues, monsters, treasure, all of that is set aside for each one of those. And then when you go to your game, you say, these are the three options available. And they say, we want to do the cave behind the waterfall. And you go, great. And you take the other two and you set them aside and do the cave in the waterfall. And then the next group comes along and, and I don't know if you offer them the same one, the cave of the waterfall. Maybe you take the cave of the waterfall out because you've run it. Now you're bored. You take the one out, you add a new one, but you still got the other two. And eventually they're going to pick those two. So you're not wasting your prep because you still have these ready to go locations where you've done all the prep for each of them. If they pick that one, you can go there. You would probably want five or 10 minutes to refamiliarize yourself with stuff, right? But you could generally say, you know, we're going to we're do that. You could also do with published stuff. So you could say like, I'm gonna take these short adventures, these like one, one session sort of adventures that you pick up on the DM scale that you pick up a drive-through and that fit the West March's style. They have locations, they have maps, they have, they have their own seat plots and monsters and stuff. And, and you just kind of bank them, right? And you, so you have like your stack of locations where you've prepped them all. And again, you probably need five or 10 minutes just to kind of reframe the, oh yeah, that's what this is about. Oh yeah, there's that weird thing. Oh, read through the secrets and clues again, right? And then you've got sort of that. So you can sort of keep your, each of them, you'd, I would think you would probably end up having to prep each of the locations you plan to run. Better is if you have some way of having the players decide beforehand, before, like a week beforehand, where they're going to go, then you get to narrow it down and say, I know they're going behind the cave and the waterfall. So that's the only thing I have to prep, right? That obviously is, a, is, is the more idealistic standpoint. But I think in this circumstance, when we talk about lazy DMing, we're talking about being efficient and efficiency means you can prep all the locations because you know you're going to use them eventually, right? And I think that that can, that can work. So I hope that answers your question, Ryan. I think we talked about it a little bit on, 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 on the Patreon page as well. Robert S. asks, what to do when the storyline stalls or goes stale? The same secrets and clues have been thrown out several times, and for whatever reason, the PCs don't take the bait, but they are kind of necessary, or at least important storylines. Would you ever talk away from, away from or across the table as Mike to get the game back on track? Is that appropriate? So appropriate is whatever makes the game fun, right? There's no such thing as appropriate or inappropriate. Right? You you do whatever works for you in your game, right? That's fundamental fundamental thing. Do what do what do what helps your game. If you want to have a conversation about it, have a conversation about it. it. Can't hurt. It sounds like there could be some other things 
going on in this circumstance, though? If the are the characters not picking up the bait because they don't understand it or because they don't care? If they don't care, you have a different problem. And then you might need to either kind of change the nature of the game and figure out what do they care about? What are they interested in? This is one of the reasons why I'm so heavy handed with session zero character creation, like wiring in the campaign into character creation at session zero is because you want them, if you're going to run Descent into Avernus, you want them to care about Elturel. If they don't care about Elturel, what's the point, right? So... I think that, or, or, you know, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, why are you going to go do 28 quests from levels one to three in 10 towns? I'm, I'm making fun. If you don't care about the people at 10 towns, right? And you don't want to help them survive the endless night. So you want to wire that stuff into the, into the characters during session zero so that they will want to pick up on every hook because they know their characters care about this stuff. This gets around that might, well, that's not what my character would do. My character doesn't care about solving Elturel. Well, why not? The only characters you should be playing are the ones who care about Elturel because in session zero, we talked about Elturel, right? You ask them like, hey, before you built your character, ask yourself why your character loves to support Elturel, right? So part of it could be that the storyline is stalling because the characters aren't invested and the characters aren't invested, the players aren't invested. So there could be a disconnect between what was the theme and the drive of the adventure and what's the theme and drive of the characters. If there's a separation there, you got a problem. If you're in the middle of it, what do you do? You might have to reset. You might have to have that conversation. Like, in order for us to go forward with this campaign, it's important that the characters have a motivation to do this stuff. I'm going to ask you guys to come up with that motivation. Do like a mid-campaign a mid campaign session zero, all right? That could be an option. Now, the other one is they aren't, they aren't picking it up because they aren't picking it up. And sometimes I think it is easier for DMs I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to make this statement right. Sometimes we 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 hold our cards too close, right? And sometimes we just have to tell them. Sometimes the secret needs to be bold and obtuse and here's what's going on, right? And because like players are busy and they're they got a lot of things going on in their lives, right? And it's late on the night and they're tired and their kids are they got soccer practice tomorrow, right? And so there's things going on and you want to so sometimes you just have to bring it to them, right? You bring, you make the clues more overt. You do clues over and over again, right? Really wired in. And I go, yes, I know that. Stop talking to me about that secret. I know that I'm supposed to pick up the third key at the cave behind the waterfall. Oh, right. And they're like, well, at least they know where they're supposed to go. So yeah. So if they're not picking it up because the players just aren't grabbing onto the stuff, is it because they don't care or they aren't, they aren't, they aren't picking up on it. And those there could be different sort of problems and out of conversation, out of, out of campaign conversations are perfectly appropriate. So I hope that answers your question. We'll do one more question today. I got lots of questions. Nick D the last thing, the thing I always struggle with when there's, is when there's all oh, skill checks. Oh boy. This is gonna be a long one. Maybe, I don't know. I'll have to do five minutes and maybe we'll talk. Uh, the thing I always struggle with is skill checks in a group. Since the characters can attempt things, even if they're not proficient picking locks, do you allow everyone to roll and try? Say the thief tries to pick a lock and fails. Can the other four members of the party each line up uh, and get a turn at it? Sort of like an airplane when they're all going to go do the persuasion check on the woman who's uh, having a panic attack, right? Anybody, any airplane fans out there? Say the thief, can the other four members of each line up and take a turn? How do you handle the case where conceivably everyone could give it a shot? And doesn't that apply to most situations anyway? How do we make characters with special skills more special? If any character can't give it a shot and gets a lucky 20, it seems to minimize the character specializations. So yes, this is a whole, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in this, but I, luckily I have an article on this. I can't even spell, but Google doesn't care. Our ability... Our ability check toolbox. I wrote this back in 2018. I'm going to post this in the chat. And there's a lot of different things to go on with, but there's one 
kind of key rule, and it's sort of the same key rule we use when we're balancing monster encounters. It's the same key rule we do in a lot of circumstances is what, what does the in-world circumstance dictate, right? What is the actual situation in game? Let's think about that before we worry about mechanics and skill checks and all that stuff. First of all, there's also no such thing as a skill check. There are ability checks where skills can modify it with a proficiency modifier. There's a reason why there's that distinction, but it's kind of important that we know it. So the, when we're doing ability checks, you start with what, what's the situation in the world? And if the situation in the world is all of the characters can work on trying to pick the lock, there's no risk if anybody fails, there's no time limitations, then you, you could theoretically just say you guys take some time and you pick the lock, right? The, and then the same goes for other circumstances. But you might say like, well, if you're going to try to convince the guard, you get one shot. And if you don't convince the guard, the guard's going to lock up and not tell you anything. Well, that's one chance, right? And there, so you have to kind of decide what are the circumstances in the world and then what applies to that, right? And that's why, uh, so I have a great big article. This is a great big article, right? That's why I remember it. Great big article. And step one is read, read up on it again. Right, go go read the player's handbook, chapter seven. Go read chapter eight in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Read them and read them regularly to understand how it's supposed to work in 5e because there's little idiosyncrasies we kind of forget about that are in the game. Think about how randomness fits into the world, right? And decide, does it warrant a check? Is it, a, can a passive check do it? Are, can somebody uh, help do use the help action with you? Can somebody aid you in this? Should you roll secretly for the character's check? because they might not know if they succeeded or failed. You know, if, if they're doing really well or there's some good reason for it, do you give them advantage on the check, sort of really boost it up? If the circumstances allow for it, go ahead and let the whole table roll. And then the highest roll is the one who really succeeds and learns something. That, I like that trick a lot. You can curb full table rolls by saying, really, only one character is able to work on this. And if they, and if they, if they screw it up, that's kind of, that's that, right? But you got to think about like, what's the world tell you? Sometimes the whole table, if you're, if you're expecting the whole table can make a check and you're like, and it's important that somebody makes it, you don't want to halt the game if it turns out everybody fails because sometimes you don't see anything higher than a six, right? That's happened. And sometimes, I think it is appropriate. I think we underuse, so the, the, the game doesn't really allow for this. They do expect that anybody can make a check and that only those trained can be proficient. But I think it is reasonable to say only somebody who's trained in thieves tools can make this check. Or only somebody who is trained in Arcana or religion can make this check. You can't, it requires a level of knowledge that those characters have and nobody else in the world does. And if they fail at it, nobody's going to be able to get it. I actually use that pretty regularly. I probably use that more often than, than somebody, than somebody does. So when somebody says that they're going to aid an ally to get it, to get advantage on the check, or they're going to cast guidance on him, you want to know what that looks like. And something that Ryan from 2C Gaming brought up, which I think is a really good point, is that guidance is not an interrupt. So if a player says, I'm going to try to smash open that door, and then Clark says, oh, I'm going to cast Guidance. They can't, they, they can't do it at that point because the minute the player says, I'm going to smash open that door, they've already committed to an action. They've already started it. And Guidance is also an action, and they can't do it ahead of time. So you could, a couple of times, you, you might stop and say, just for the record, before you guys attempt anything, you probably want to discuss how, as a group, how you're going to do it, and then do it that way. And that way the cleric says, okay, he, you're going to try to smash open the door. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to help you up by casting guidance on you. And someone says, I'm going to help back you up too. I'm going to take a really good, careful look at the door and see where you might be able to hit it to break the door open. And then the barbarian's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm guided. I've got my, my help action. And now I'm going to bust the door. The difference is you you don't have this sort of like magic, the gathering style interrupt process of I'm going to smash open the door. Oh, I'm going to aid him. Oh, I'm going to cast guidance, right? Instead, you're saying like, as a group, you should discuss what your approach is going to be, then do it. And then, and then it all plays out in turn. And that way there's a sequence to ability checks that makes sense rather than sort of 
everybody piling on everything at once. You can't cast, if you're, if a rogue is going to attempt something and doesn't tell the group that they're going to do it, the cleric can't guide them because they're going to, they're already doing it before the cleric has even figured out they're doing it. So instead you want the group to talk about the fact like, Hey, I'm going to do this. Can you cast guidance on me? Yeah. Okay. Boom. Okay. I'm guided. Now I'm going to go do this thing. So I think the answer, the, oh, and so there's one other little tricky bit that's not in this article uh, that I read about. Let's, let's say, oh, let's look at the Black Abishai or the Red Abishai. Let's not. We'll go sources, source books, Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, little note. So, you know, this is my weekly pitch for, hey, the Dungeon Master's Guide has a whole lot of interesting things in it. It's probably worth a good skim because a lot of the things people talk about a lot of the time uh, are, in the, are in the Dungeon Master's Guide and they're kind of hidden. So there was something about skill checks in here. Firearms, explosives, grenades, alien technology, plot points, combat options. Was there skill variants, ability options? This is the section I was looking for. And in here, uh, somebody says, you know, oh boy, I sure wish that D&D 5th edition had the take 10. You remember the take 10 where you could like, you know, do essentially a passive check? And it's in here. Oh, where is it? I saw it. I gotta look for it. Maybe somebody help me out and tell me the section if you remember it. Running the game, table rules, using ability scores. Let's try this. Maybe it's under here. Yeah. So the ability check section has a whole lot of information about what's going on. How did you know? You know, in some in some case, this basically talks about what I was talking about, which is that in some cases it's okay for people to do it. In some cases, you have a context. There was a section on here. Yeah, variant automatic successes. This is your take ten, right? Sometimes the randomness of a D20 leads to ludicrous results. Be 15, fighter with a strength of 20, helplessly smashes against the door. Meanwhile, rogue with a strength of 10, rolls a 20 and knocks it. If it bothers you, consider automatic success for certain checks. Under this optional rule, a character automatically succeeds on an ability check with a DC less than or equal to the relevant ability score, minus five. So an example, a, a DC, if you have a 20 strength, you can break it down. Uh, having proficiency with a skill or two can also grant automatic. If a character's proficiency bonus applies to his or her ability checks, the character automatically succeeds if the DC is 10 or less. If that character is level or higher, it's DC 15. So if you're proficient in a skill, you automatically succeed if the DC is 10. I would probably, I think of another variant of this that you could apply uh, is you can essentially take passives on anything. So I might make a rule. It's not quite in here, but this kind of changes into you take you take your passive checks from the player's handbook and you take this idea and you put them together. And what you could get is if you're willing to take 10 minutes, you can do essentially the equivalent of a passive check. So if I am trained in, if I'm a rogue and I'm particularly skilled, yeah, MQY says, I personally do the passive checks on everything. So one way to do it is if you're willing to take your time, if there's no real risk, if you don't have to do it just once, you can essentially say the rogue with a passive check of you know whatever their you know their dexterity plus their thieves tools check and let's say it's plus eight that means they have a passive of 18 if they're willing to take 10 minutes they can just do an 18 and and automatically walk in all right and that that way i think it works out pretty well so so using passives everywhere if you're not familiar with passives if you think about passive perception passive insight passive investigation you could also theoretically do passives on the other ones they're not really passive because you're actually doing something but th that can give you the equivalent of like a take 10 right very very simple sort of house rule uh, that you can do to sort of get in. Can I bust down this door? Yeah, sure, you can, right? And the other one is just like if they're good at it. But if you wanted to the automatic successes, this is a way, you know, these are, it does have a couple of ways to say, here's how you can, you know, here's how you can do it. And also, this one also has that the, the rule that you can use skill checks in different ability scores, like strength or intimidation if you're bending a bar or ripping a phone book in half, right? So that's definitely a way to do it. So...
Nick D, that should hopefully give you uh, a bunch of different thoughts about how to do ability checks. Ability checks is a really interesting topic and something that I've been thinking about. I wanna write another article about it. I've been thinking about the flow of ability checks. It's because it's the core mechanic, we kind of you know take it for granted. I think there's so many different ways to use it, so many different ways it applies, so many different approaches that it's actually a really big, complicated topic. And I don't know how best to sort of like build some lazy rules around it so we can do all of these interesting things. But I think a lot of times DMs sort of figure it out as they go, right? And you can try things out and you figure it as you go. So anyway, I think that is it for today's Lazy D&D talk show. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, you can help me out in five ways. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Three, you can support me directly on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Four, you can pick up any of my existing books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy Dames Workbook, and others. Five, you can follow my new Kickstarter. I have my Kickstarter for the Lazy, DM, Lazy DM's Companion coming out on the 28th. It's in the show notes below. Please go to it. Please click notify me on launch and you will be notified when this Kickstarter is live. If you're watching this video after the 28th, of September, uh, the Kickstarter is live and you can back the book directly. You can also download the preview. If it is past the 20th of October, you'll have to wait. There'll probably be some pre-order options. So you can probably pre-order the book as well. So I wanna thank everybody for coming today. It is always a great pleasure of mine to sit and chat with you on a Sunday morning and talk about D&D. So I wanna thank everybody for coming. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.